Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This week is a little bit different in format to the last few weeks, just because, well, last week was International Women's Day, which is always my busiest week of the year. I think I did 12 talks in total. And then, of course, this year it was added to with the Meghan and Harry interview, which feels like a lifetime ago now, and the death of Sarah Everard. I actually spoke about the Sarah Everard case and how it has made women feel on my radio show on Saturday night. So I'm going to include that here. Before I do, I add the note that when you talk about live cases on the radio, you are sometimes limited in what you can say, because if it comes to court and the jury goes one way or the other, it's possible for lawyers to then appeal based on public opinion and media influence. So you have to be quite careful, which is why some of the phrasing sounds like I'm not talking about things that you expected me to mention or that it sounds a little bit carefully phrased. That's why. So I'm going to put that in. But also on this week's show, I thought it might be nice for all of us just to have something a little lighter to talk about. So I'm interviewing two people that I really enjoy talking to and I think you'll really learn from and hopefully enjoy listening to. The first is Jill Hopper. She's the author of The Mahogany Pod, which is a really incredible memoir all about her relationship she had when she was 24 and how she coped in the kind of exceptional circumstances of that relationship. And the second is an interview with Helen Sharman, CMG, OBE. She's the first British person to ever travel in space. We talk about what it is like to be in space, what astronauts actually get up to, and just why she is sure that the first people to walk on Mars will be women. I haven't got a listener of problem for you this week. I think that's just as well. I don't have much advice, but if you want to send me one for the following week, my email is harriet.minter at gmail.com. Plus, just a little reminder that my book, WFH, How to Build a Career You Love When You're Not in the Office, is out now. So you can order it now and have it in your hands tomorrow. If you're thinking about buying it, I would love you forever if you did. And if you've bought a copy and you enjoyed it, please do leave me a review on Amazon. Turns out Amazon takes those things very seriously, even if you haven't bought the book from there. Now, this is the week that we discovered that Sarah Everett, who went missing last week, had sadly lost her life. If you have been on social media at all this week, you will have seen what an impact this has had on the women around you. And maybe you've asked yourself some questions about that. So I wanted to 
open tonight's show talking about why women right now are sharing their experiences of sexual harassment, of sexual abuse, of rape, and why it is important that they continue to do so. Because I'm seeing on my social media a lot of backlash to this. I'm seeing a lot of men saying, well, hang on, you sharing this makes me feel like I am being accused of something that I didn't do. I am seeing a very tragic reoccurrence of the not all men hashtag. We thought it had gone, but no, it's back. And I think we need to take some time to actually really explain why this has had such a strong impact on women and why we have to continue talking about it and why I am going to keep talking about it until ultimately the entire society understands that what we are facing here is a deep-rooted societal problem that we all have to act together to solve. So here's the first thing. If you have been on social media this week, you might have thought, hang on, why does it feel like suddenly all men everywhere are responsible for making women feel unsafe? You might have even been tempted to tweet using that famous hashtag, hashtag not all men. So look, here is what we think about this. Here's what women think about this. Women know that theoretically not every man is going to sexually harass, abuse or assault them. They know that. What they don't know, however, is which men will. Unfortunately, men don't have badges on them saying this is a good one or this is a bad one. So as women, every day we have to walk around making an assessment about is this man safe or is this man not safe? Every single day we make that assessment about every man we see. A lot of them, we don't get the time to make a serious assessment. We're not having nice chats with them. They don't come with a CV. We're merely walking down the street and we have to ask ourselves, is this man behind me just walking in the same direction or is he following me? And we don't know the answer. And the problem is that while we have stats which say that 97% of women have been sexually harassed at some point in their life, and quite frankly, that other 3%, I don't know them because every single woman I know has experienced some level of sexual harassment, while those stats exist, then what we have to admit is that while not all men sexually harass women, enough men have sexually harassed women that 97% of women have been sexually harassed. Do you understand that? Do you understand how many men that takes? It's not just one or two, okay? It's quite a lot of them. So that's the first thing you might have been thinking. If you are thinking that it's not all men, yes, women, no, it's not all men. The problem is we don't know which ones it isn't and it's too many of them. That's the big problem. Second thing you might have been thinking is, well, women, if you want to stay safe on the streets, you've got to look after yourself. It's actually not that bad out there for women. You've just got to be sensible about it. You've got to make sure that you tell a friend when you get home. You've got to make sure that you carry your keys in your hand. You've got to think about how you keep yourself safe. Well, yeah, women know that. We have been doing that since we were small. We have been doing that since we were three, four. The second our mothers realised that we would be able to walk away from them, they started teaching us how to keep ourselves safe. So women are very aware of that. We know to carry our keys. We know to text our friends. We know that we look for the houses with the lights on because if you have to run, those are the houses you're going for. Women know that we are doing everything we can to keep ourselves safe and to suggest that we are not is to suggest that somehow it is our fault in a way that we would never suggest that about somebody who was mugged or the way that we wouldn't suggest it about your granddad who had somebody on the phone con him out of his money. You would say that that was not his fault, that he was a victim of a con and you would just allow him to be a victim. 
you wouldn't have expected him to have done anything differently. So we have to stop asking, what more can women do to prevent this? And instead, we have to start asking ourselves, how do we educate our men? How do we educate our sons? So this is no longer a women problem. I want to give you an idea of how big a problem this is, okay? Because it's not a small problem. We know that. It's not a small problem. In 2019 to 2020, there were over 62,000 reports of rape in the UK. 62,000. In that same year, police referred 2,747 cases to the CPS for prosecution. And that was a drop on the year before. And in that same year, 1,439 suspects were convicted of rape or another crime. So from 62,000 to 1,439. It is a massive problem and we are not dealing with it. And what happens when we don't deal with it is that every week, two women are killed. And here's the final thing that you might have thought this week when you saw the outpouring on social media. You might have thought, why is it that we only see this level of attention when a young, attractive, white woman dies. Because we know that she's not the first woman to have died this year. We know, in fact, that last year, two black women, Biba Henry and Nicole Smallman, were killed in a London park. And we know that they did not receive the same level of press attention, anywhere near it, in fact. They did not receive the same level of outpouring of grief, they did receive the same level of respect. And here is a problem that we have to admit. We have to admit that our entire society, and the media included, do not take women's assaults seriously and certainly do not take the assaults and deaths of women of colour seriously. And that is not to say that we shouldn't take our grief and our sadness about any woman who has died and put it on social media and talk about it and use it as a catalyst for change, we absolutely should. Because every single woman who dies unnecessarily at the hands of a man needs to be recognised, regardless of who they are. And so this week, you will probably have seen amongst your female friends anger, sadness, frustration, resentment, grief. And that is because we are all too aware that it could be us, and we are all too aware that maybe one day when it is, people won't notice, and that needs to change. And now, as I mentioned, I spoke to two very different women this week, and I really enjoyed talking to both of them, so I think you will enjoy hearing from them. The first is author Jill Hopper. When she was 24, Jill met and fell in love with a man who was shortly diagnosed with a terminal illness. Her family all told her she should leave him, but she stayed, and this is what she learned. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Thank you for joining me, Jill. Oh, hi, Harriet. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what the book is about. Well, it's about the experience of losing my boyfriend, uh, which happened in my early 20s. This was back in 1994, His name was Arif and I met him when he moved into the shared house where I was living and um, we started to fall in love but then he was told um, that he only had a few months to live and my, my friends and family were understandably really worried about me getting hurt and they said I should just walk away but um, I, I, I couldn't do that I didn't feel I wanted to do that and 
So the book really is about that very intense and joyful and painful experience of, of choosing to get involved with someone that I knew was going to die soon. And I guess I think it's quite an unusual book because there's a really long perspective to it. You know, it's, it's really about my mature self because I'm, I'm 51 now. So it's about my mature self looking back at that experience that my young self had, you know, and trying to work out what mm. um, what I could learn from it and and what new beginnings might have come out of those endings that I experienced at the time. Why did you decide to write about it now? Well, I sat down to write when I was 48 um, and Arif was 24 when he died. And I think I... I just suddenly realised when I hit that birthday that I'd had twice as much life as he'd had. Yeah. And that hit me quite powerfully. And um, I actually started writing when I um, I came across a, a gift that he'd given me all those years ago, um, which was a, a mahogany pod. The book's actually called The Mahogany Pod. And it's a, it's, it, it has that name because... Arif found a, this amazing seed pod when he was travelling in, in Africa and he gave that to me shortly before he died. And I I decided to try and find out more about that seed pod and, and where it might have come from and, and what it had meant to him. And that was that was sort of the opening up of of the book, really. I used that as a way into that experience, which was quite painful to explore directly. That was a sort of a way a way into it. Experiencing that level of grief at just such a young age, what impact do you think it's had on you? Um, well, I've built a very happy life. I've been married for 18 years. I've got a son and, um, you know, I, you, have to, you have to get on with life. You have to live the life that, that you have. But I think it was an experience that I almost literally locked away you know I had a box and I put my my diaries and the mahogany pod and the few photos that I had and mm. letters and things and I just I just shut them away um but opening that box really opened opened the experience up again and I was able to look back and see I suppose with compassion you know my younger self struggling with an experience that was too big for me at the time because I think what it does is when you lose a partner particularly in your 20s it's not what you expect to be happening then mm. yeah so I was suddenly out of step with all my friends you know they were talking about their their jobs their careers their love lives mm. um and I was I felt that I'd been catapulted forward really to a later stage in my life that naturally wouldn't happen until you're sort of yeah. 60s, your 70s, or older, even if you're if you're lucky, and there wasn't an awful lot of support around at the time. Again, you know, if you'd lost a partner, all the all the leaflets that I was given about bereavement and so on, they had pictures of people with grey hair, and 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 you know, that, that's not to diminish mm -hmm. yeah. the loss of people at that age, but I think I just felt that I was completely alone with it. Um, and again, that's something in the book that I really wanted to explore was was looking at, at what effect that had on me. The experience of grief is one that I think 
all of us in the past year have felt, even if we haven't experienced it directly, we've felt it very closely. Mm. And I'm looking particularly, say, this week at the kind of collective grief that women around the country are feeling over the death of Sarah Everett. And I just wondered what you have learned about grief and bereavement that you think you would wanted to have known at that age. I think I, what I knew about grief from a sort of theoretical point of view was this famous theory, you know, about the five stages and you, yeah. you go from, you know, denial to anger to bargaining, you know, and you go through these stages and eventually you reach acceptance. And that wasn't really my experience of it. My experience of it was a, a whirlpool. Um, I think, you know, grief wears a lot of different masks and it's it's a living thing really that that moves alongside you and changes as you change and and move through your life Mm -hmm. and you have to I think what I learned eventually was that I couldn't I couldn't fight it I had to just I had to somehow find a way of accommodating it and I suppose accepting just accepting that if I had moments of happiness and joy that didn't mean that I I was being untrue to, to, you know, the the grief that I still felt underneath. And conversely, I could be extremely happy and there would be moments of sadness blended in with that. And I suppose that's the thing that, there, you know, there aren't hard boundaries. It's a, it's a very fluid state. And I, I hope that that comes across in, in the books. I think it's a very interesting topic that's perhaps still not talked about all that much. Do you think that writing the book has changed you and changed your view of the experience? It was a really transformative experience, writing the book, and what I've tried to capture really is the most intense moments of being alive. So it's not... It isn't a gloomy book. It's full of joy, you know, the intensity of young love when you're in your 20s and um, all those, those very sort of vital powerful moments that that we shared um and i think i say transformative writing it because a lot of things that i thought were closed and ended i discovered were actually sort of seeds of something that was still capable of change in that you know there were certain relationships that had been quite difficult um had been left in quite a difficult state after aris death and through writing the book, I was able to revisit and repair some of those relationships and revitalise them, and that's been enormously helpful. And the other thing is, I mean, the book's only been out for a few weeks, but I'm getting, I'm getting messages, I'm getting letters, I'm getting emails from people already sort of saying what the book has meant to them and what it's doing for them, and that's, that's a very powerful thing for me, sort of feeling that by sharing that experience, it's actually connecting with people and perhaps sort of consoling or or making them think in a different way. What would you say to anyone who is facing a similar situation now? Anyone who perhaps has a loved one who is ill or who is aware that they don't have much time left with them, what would you tell them? It's very difficult, isn't it? I, mm. I think every experience is individual and unique and I wouldn't say that I am any better positioned than anybody else to say what is the right or wrong thing to do but all I can say is that 
the time that I had with Arif was a time when I felt most intensely alive and I I feel now that it's true that that love is a stronger force than death and that the love that you have for somebody can never be taken away from you even when the person is taken away that's a beautiful sentiment thank you so much Jill it's been so lovely to talk to you and hear your story and it, what an incredible story it is Jill's book The Mahogany Pod is out now and just as you can hear there there's a really a beautiful exploration of love and grief and I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The transcendent power of love over death. That was Jill Hopper and her book, The Mahogany Pod, is out now. And finally on this week's show, oh, I loved talking to Helen Sharman. She was the first British person to go into space. And honestly, if I'd had her teaching me about physics and science when I was younger, I would definitely have been trying to follow in her astronaut boots. Here she is. Hi, Helen. Hello there. First of all, um, tell me about travelling to space. What was it like? And was it everything you expected or more? I think it was more than what I expected because, of course, I didn't really know what it was going to actually feel like. Of course, I'd had loads of training, so I knew what was going to happen. I knew what I needed to do. So in that respect, it it was exactly as I had expected. But, of course, in terms of actually feeling that launch, hearing the rumble of the engines um, and and the the bumps as the rocket stages are jettisoned, and then when you suddenly start to feel weightless you get that just amazing magical 
floaty feeling. That yeah, I could, although we did some training in um, in what they call a vomit comet, so you have a few seconds of feeling weightless. It it was only a few seconds. It was nothing like what it what it does when you when it goes on and on for minutes and hours and days on end. So yeah, but a bit of both really, but more than I expected, I suppose. And for those of us who don't know, what were you doing in space, and how did that come to be your life's work? I was doing experiments on the Russian Mir space station, which was the precursor to the International Space Station that we have now. And yes, it all came about, although when I was growing up, there was no chance in Britain to be an astronaut, you know. It just wasn't possible. So um, I got on with my life, um, enjoyed science, and I studied science after after school at university. And I got a a couple of jobs in industry. I was working as an industrial scientist, driving my car home from work in the evening as you do um, and listening to the radio so you know I have a lot to thank the radio for <laughs> because on the radio as I was flicking through the stations trying to find some music I actually didn't find music I found voice I had I found a um, um, an announcement for this brand new opportunity for somebody from Britain to go and train with the cosmonauts and then do experiments on board the space station and that was the first time I ever actually thought that it could actually you know be me going into space because before then it just wasn't possible so yeah I applied selection process never expecting to be chosen but um but yes I was and then um two years after I heard that advert there I was floating on board a space station wow I mean what was it like seeing the world from space what did it give you do you kind of come back from that with a whole new perspective on the earth and the world and how you feel about it or does it become just a job it was a most wonderful experience in so many different ways um but yes in terms of changing my perspective on life i think for me the biggest um, the, the, the biggest wake up really was um, realizing that, of course, when I was looking out of the window, looking back at the earth, yeah. um, what was I missing? And it was only when I got back to earth that I realized what I had not thought about when I was in space. Right, so you look out of the uh, window, you think about your family, your friends in the countries that you're going over, where you know people. Mm. Um, but I didn't once think about any of those material possessions you know the the stuff that we often strive so much to get when we're in in sort of wrapped up in just modern life Mm -hmm. so um, yeah that made me realize that perhaps I was living my life with the wrong set of priorities and I did then resolve to change that and to always make sure that people um, my family my friends supporting them caring for them was actually the most important thing in life and everything else after that could take second place I love that. How do we engage kids now in the concept of space and exploration and science? Because I loved this stat from the research, which says that, you know, over 50% of children think that space travel will sort of be something that's part of their life. Is that possible? Well, in terms of being part of life, I mean, I suppose we could argue that space is part of all of our lives now in terms of how much we use let's say, the data from uh, GPS satellites for all our navigation. We've got all the communications, um, all the, you know, the weather satellites. And there is so much, uh, all of our bank transfers and all of that kind of stuff go around the world by use of satellites. So there's that kind of thing, I suppose, already it's part of all of our lives. But in terms of, I think, what, what the children are really thinking about is 
Will they perhaps make more use of perhaps human beings being in space or what we can bring back from space to actually use? And I think, yes, it really will be much more part of the future, for certainly for the young people nowadays. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure we'll have people going into space as tourists as frequently as you might just pop down to have have a game of football in the park down the road, for instance. But I can certainly see how people will get jobs in the space industry. I mean, no, certainly in the UK, the government's really investing hard in all sorts of tech in the future. But in the space industry in particular, just in the UK, we think we're going to need 70,000 more people, mostly STEM-educated people, but just in the next decade, so the next 10 years, 70,000. Wow. That's tremendous. And they'll be working, oh, they won't all be going into space themselves, but they'll be working in the space industry. They'll be you know, making spacecraft, um, project managing, doing all sorts wow. of stuff. Um, but yes, some people, I imagine, will go into space themselves because their employer will want to send them. So rather than thinking, oh, well, have I got enough money to send myself as a tourist, which is, I think, unlikely for most of us, certainly not me, um, but we, we probably, I can see, let's say you work for a pharmaceutical company. Pharmaceutics, obviously, they need mm-hmm. um, to develop lots of new drugs. And one way of researching new drugs is, is growing protein crystals, which the astronauts on the International Space Station do. I did, in fact, when I was in space. You bring them back oh to Earth, gosh. and with it, by analysing these protein crystals, helps us to understand how those proteins interact with other proteins in the body, and we can design drugs based on that information, for instance. yeah. So, um, so let's say you're a, a pharmaceutical company. You might want to send your member of staff into space to, to, to grow loads of different protein crystals that you're really interested in to develop your drugs. Or you might be a manufacturer of household products, say, mm. and that you want to do some research on flame retardants. So fire retardants, so you send one of your members of staff into space to do that kind of research. So actually, I can see people getting paid to go into space and it might be just like say a a few months a bit like me I went as if you like a one-off um so it might it might not be as a career astronaut when you're going repeatedly but instead of going you know doing a project in the factory uh, (laughs) in the town down the road you might be doing that project in a factory in space instead um so I can I can see how that's going to be part of people's lives but of course with all of the you know the excitement this year three missions to Mars you know, that's, I think, the really exciting thing. And we think now, actually, that the first person to walk on the surface of Mars has been born and probably is at school. So oh my gosh. it really is going to be, going to Mars is going to be a big part of our young people's lives in the future. Some of them will go to the surface of Mars. I have no doubt about that. And many of them will be able to get excited about humans going to another planet, just as people in the 1960s did about people landing on the moon. It'll be that, that much part of our lives. So yeah, lots of different aspects of space flight, I think. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about this because, I mean, I'm just fascinated. I realise I've never had any idea what people actually got up to on the International Space Station. I thought it went up there, tinkered around and came back down again. But I had no idea you were growing things. Um, yeah, all sorts of different things. Plants, you can imagine how they might behave differently. I mean, yeah, we could we could talk talk all night, but talk yeah, there's some night. great information out on them, you know, NASA and ESA website 
website, European mm. Space Agency and NASA websites on, on what the astronauts are up to, apart from floating around and looking out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I do want to know, though, is how do we ensure, if we're going to have people walking on Mars, how do we ensure that some of those people, and quite frankly, in my opinion, ideally the first person, is a woman? Well, so <laughs> I think... I, I'm fairly certain that and there will be huge international pressure to make sure that there are women on that in that first crew. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's important that we get all sorts of people interested, girls included, but girls and boys, but interested in not just going into space, but I think by talking about space, I mean, everybody's interested in, I think, in certain aspects of it, um, but children seem to be interested in everything to do with space because they're really curious you know so they imagine what they would feel like if they were there and how would they survive and of course the beauty of all of this when we're thinking about the space environment is it's science and it's science that's just part of everyday life and then children get interested in science they start to think about well if that's how they would survive in space then actually that science is happening on earth but perhaps without us really thinking about it we take for granted about you know how plants provide us with energy through photosynthesis or those green leaves and so on so it just extrapolates to life on earth i think so yes there's, there's that excitement about space um and and just making sure that children have got lots of access to not just the information about space flight itself but i think if, if you can get involved in something that's something practical as well something that that really um it, ideally something that's going through those kind of um, and environmental conditions, if you can. And that actually brings me on to uh, something I'd really like to mention because there's um, a brilliant project that's just been launched by Talos Alenia Space. They are launching something called the Mars Balloon Project. So Mars Balloon, it's all one mm -hmm. word, um, but it's um, this, this actually is for students, that children of any age, aimed at schools, but other clubs can apply as well. And the idea is that children design an experiment that will be taken up under a, a balloon. It will be taken up really high into the Earth's atmosphere, like, like really high, so high that the conditions that high up will be very similar to some of the conditions on the surface of Mars, like the Ooh. really low atmospheric pressure, very similar, really low temperature, and also some of the, the radiation, very, very similar to on the surface of Mars. So the students can design experiments that will be investigating how will perhaps astronauts survive on the surface of Mars? Will we need to protect astronauts from ultraviolet radiation or other kinds of radiation? How will they detect that radiation? How will certain materials um, shield the astronauts? Or how will plants um, perhaps um, perceive that kind of conditions? And or different kinds of materials, glues and water even. So there are all sorts of things you can do. So anyway, the idea is that experiments go up into this uh, very high up and then they come back down and um, the Mars Balloon Project will actually post the experiments back to the children in their schools and clubs wow. so they will have it back so they can see it, have it, touch it, you know, that sounds um, and amazing. investigate it. So yes, yeah, so I think it's, it's a great thing. So things like that, I mean, think it would just, um, just, just hopefully get, get children not just interested in space and 
the kind of careers that we can have in the space industry, but just get them excited about science. And of course, beauty of this, it's group work, it's creative, you're doing it with Mm -hmm. your friends. And um, goodness, what have people missed so much? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I I think it sounds amazing. It sounds Um, fun, doesn't it? It sounds a lot of fun. I'm I'm probably going to do it and just send it in anyway. Helen, it's (laughs) lovely to talk to you. Uh, Helen Helen Sharman, the CMGOB, the first British person to travel into space, talking to us all about what that experience is like and how we can get our kids involved. And if you've got kids, particularly if you've got daughters, I know I'm biased, but you know, particularly if you've got daughters, get them involved. The Mars balloon, do go and check it out. That's all for this week's show, but I'll be back again next week with more interviews, chat and your listener problems. If you'd like to get in touch in the meantime, you can find me on social media at Harriet Minter or do drop me an email, harrietminter at gmail.com. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.